Hello everyone and welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Redeye. I'm your host, Eddie Ponyan, and with me here in the studio is my friend and colleague, Niklas Sebos. How are you? I'm really excited today, as always, when we have a new guest on the podcast, but uh, this time we don't have a new guest. Yes, today we are excited to do our second interview with Avner Mandelman, the writer, former rocket scientist and prior hedge fund manager that joined the podcast in episode 22. We then discussed his classic, The Sleuth Investor, which we now look forward to follow up with uh, his new book. But maybe before we go into that, can you first remind us what a sleuth is? Yeah, so so being a sleuth means to be a detective, which uh, Mandelman thinks investors have to be today to outperform. Sitting at a desk, reading what everyone else is reading, won't give you an edge. Instead, you need to go out in the real world to find physical evidence that is true, important and exclusive to you. For example, he recommends talking to employees, customers and suppliers, and gives some hands-on advice on how to do it. Yeah, Mandelman explains it as the information that the numbers cannot contain. And the title of his new book is The Advanced Sleuth Investor. Can you briefly tell us about it? So my first thought from hearing the title was that the book would be about more advanced sleuthing techniques and a very practical book. While several sleuthing cases are included, uh, this book also has the purpose of explaining why Mandelman thinks sleuthing is the superior method to outperform the market. In short, he argues that we need to learn how to use a part of our brain that almost no other investor use. I think it's a fascinating read and I'm impressed by how he connects the dots from numerous disciplines to advocate for his approach. But how does the book fit with our quality rating? So for new listeners, our quality rating consists of about 100 questions in a checklist that we use as uh, equity analysts. And the questions are divided into three main categories, people, business and financials. And As we have mentioned, sleuthing is a method for finding information about the people and about the business, which hasn't yet yet showed up in the financials. So in this sense, I think there is a clear connection with the rating we use here at Red Eye. The Advanced Sleuth Investor will be published in 2023, and we are delighted to have its author on the show today. Here comes our conversation with Abner Mandelman. Hello, Abner, and welcome back to Investing by the Books podcast. Thank you very much. Where are you this time? I am in Toronto, same place, my condo penthouse overlooking the city, 21st floor, uh, the CN Tower uh, to the south and uh, and Sherwood Park to the east. Uh, nice, I wouldn't say nice weather, some snow outside, but a lovely view. Sounds wonderful. And uh, for those not familiar with Avner Mandelman, what are your merits? Well, um, I've been very active the last few years. I have a uh, I have a Bachelor of Science from the Israel Technion in Aeronautical Engineering, that's rocket science. I also have an MBA from Stanford Business School. Afterward, as a Boston's holiday, I took a degree in creative writing and English in uh, San Francisco State University and uh, worked in Canada and, uh, and France, other places. Before that, in Israel, I've been in the Israeli army, so I know something about unpeaceful life. And uh, started a few hedge funds, uh, sold one robo advisors, and uh, wrote a few books on the way. And now I am semi-retired. And in March uh, 2022, we talked about your first book on investing, and uh, you then mentioned the sequel on the sleuthing te- theme. What's the purpose of uh, your new title, The Advanced Sleuth Investor? 
The the first book was written about I think uh, like seven oh uh, seven today's oh two like about fifteen years ago, and uh, I've got quite a number of reactions from people in the meantime about the book, and uh, most say that they love it and they like it, but quite a number of people didn't really believe that there's information beyond blips and ink that you cannot really record on the computer or see on a screen or read it, read in, in databases. And to me, it seemed that for the last few years, this had been proven, but apparently not. So before people are going to start using the method of sleuth investing, they have to be convinced. Because in the market, you're doing battle with opponents who are equally informed as you and uh, much smarter than you, at least they're smarter than me. And the only way I know of, of to, to really win is to work harder, but get information they don't have. And the first book told about information that is physical. If you go after physical information before it became blips and ink, you have a chance. And um, seeing that quite a number of the overeducated readers didn't believe me, I decided to write a book to do two things. First of all, prove to them that there is such information. And secondly, give them the tools to do it. And that's how the book came out. Uh, the, the, the audience for the book is basically intelligent investors with a bank account who uh, have read quite widely and still cannot outperform the market, which is about 95% of everyone, 92, 95% of everyone. So most people who invest today, especially via the internet, are engaged in a sort of expensive video game that costs them money. Uh, because just as Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger say, if you don't really know how to invest, buy an index fund. And for the last 15 years, Berkshire Hathaway itself basically matched the market. So my book is supposed to help people who are intelligent, well-read, and have a bank account to outperform the market. Otherwise, just buy an index fund. And to beat the market, you write that our main tool for investing is our brains. And you mostly discuss two different parts of the brain, brain an older one and a more modern. So for everyone to, to follow here, can you explain the difference? Um, they, again, it's interesting, most people are, when you have a machinery supposed to do a job, you look at the, at the job itself, but you also look at the machinery. Uh, our machinery has 12 cylinders, we use maybe three or four. Uh, the, the brain itself is an organ that is doing the understanding, the categorizing. And the, the, the brain older part, like the brain stem and extending even to the spine, is doing fairly specific work. If you have a stimulus, for example, you touch the stove, the spine will tell your hand to yank away. But the main intellectual organ in the brain is called the cortex, has six layers, and these six layers operate almost as a neural network. Um, this part of the, of the brain is fairly recent, I mean, evolutionary speaking, and therefore it had to fit itself to whatever new conditions come. And to do that, it takes a lot of the uh, mishmash information falling upon, upon it from the universe and also from the body itself. And it puts it into silos. It categorizes this, this thing. And it does it via one single algorithm called the, the, the Vernon Mount Castle algo, which has been found, I think, like, two, like 20 or 30 years ago by Vernon Mount Castle. They should have gotten Nobel Prize, but they didn't. The two who did get the Nobel Prize for the brain structure, uh, mentioned him. And, uh, this, this algorithm 
takes all the mishmash information and put it into categories, all the categories names, and with these names, the brain does intellectual work. Not on the, not on the original census, but on the, on the categories. So all your degrees that, that you listeners got is after your cortex doing this intellectual work and so the, to mine. But in order to do that, the brain first has to forget a few things. And when the brain forgets, there's some information still hidden inside someplace. And that's the information I'm after because it can give me an advantage over my opponents in the market and yours too. These are the CFA, the intellectual invest investors that only use databases and blips on the screen to click buy and sell. If you can have physical information that they don't have, you can take their money. And that's in essence my, my aim. One of my favorite uh, books uh, overall is uh, Kahneman's uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, where he introduces the, the concept of a system one and system two, which uh, you use in the book. Uh, and uh, many of our listeners may be familiar with the concept, but can you, can you briefly explain a system one versus uh, system two? Sure. Um, uh, Daniel Kahneman won the Nobel Prize uh, for economics because of their decision theory. And Daniel Tvers and, and uh, Tversky, his, his partner, would have won it too, but he, he passed away before the Nobel Prize was awarded. Their idea was that we have two modes of thinking. Uh, the system one is the instinctive mode of thinking. Y your brain reacts on the stimuli without even processing it, like very fast. But it's only accurate 70 or 80% of the time. If you hear, let's say, if you are in Chicago or Detroit and you hear a loud boom, you immediately think that it could be a sound of a gun and you duck to avoid the next bullet. Uh, you can be 80% right, but 20% wrong. Uh, still, it's something that you have to do based on emergency. Uh, the, this mode of thinking is a primitive mode of thinking and Kahneman tries to motivate people to use the system two, that you take all the stimuli coming in and you make them into categories on which you can do Analysis, you can put the sound into a analyzer or into a neural net and with the 99.9% .9 realize it's really only a backup, uh, you know, a backup from a car or, or a motorcycle. But it may come only five minutes too late because you could be dead from the bullet. So there's time to use system one and time to use system two. The system two thinking is using the ability of the brain to categorize. And here is what my book gets a bit deeper into it, because you have, I think, at least three big discoveries over the last few decades and few years that show how this thing really works. The first one was what I mentioned, that the Verne Mountcastle that proved that the brain categorizes. Um, and the second one is um, the, the, the one that came out via uh, 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 the research of uh, Naftali Tishbi, in uh, in Israel, who uh, found that when you that the neural net or also the brain categorizes information, it has to forget some of the uncategorized pieces. It puts all the information into silos, calls them names, and does all the work on them. But some pieces are being thrown away, and the fact that there are areas of the universe or commercial universe also in which categories don't work has been proven several times uh, since by trying to prove the, the uh, claim 
of John Bell. John Bell was a physicist who tried to answer Einstein and Podolsky and Rosen, who said that, uh, I'm going a bit on a tangent here, but the, in physics, there's a famous uh, paradox. It's called the spooky action at a distance. When you have two particles that split, and one goes left, one goes right, and they are parsecs away from each other, if you measure one, uh, you know, when you know the spin of it, you also know automatically the spin of the other one, because if the sum of the spin was zero, if one is plus, the other is going to be minus. But this indicates that you have spooky action at a distance. Uh, Einstein, Podolsky, and Rosen said that there must be some hidden variables that make both particles act the same way. Uh, John Bell, an Irish physicist, said there ain't no such thing. There are no hidden variables. In certain areas of the universe, the two particles look like two, but they are really one. And the action is, is simultaneous, so to speak, because it's the same piece. Therefore, some areas of the universe, and in my understanding, the commercial universe too, there are areas where mathematics doesn't work because they have no categories there. So with these three, three pieces of information, you can be sure that if you do physical investigation, you are going to get information that others don't have. And at the same time, you can be sure that some of the analysis that value investors do on categorized information, which is the balance sheet, income statement, and cash flow statement, they are going to do analysis on some missing pieces, which you will have, and they don't. Um, and this gave me the impetus to at least go a bit deeper into it by using uh, a bunch of um, metaphors to uh, to convince the reader that what I'm saying is right. Yeah, and as you say, the, the book consists of 10 chapters, and uh, each of, of these feature one discipline and point of view on sleuthing and why it makes sense. And because uh, now we have talked about system two, how that is something that most intellectual investors are using, but you are arguing for uh, that more people should use the system one. And, and there are many different uh, aspects that you can use it. And uh, these different views that you have uh, in the chapters, they are the accountant's view, the historian's view, the generals, the intel operatives, the mathematicians, the lawyers, the chess players, the physicists, the brain scientists, and then the artists. So uh, before we go deeper into those, how come you chose these 10? Uh, what I'm claiming is kind of extreme because I'm saying there's information out there that is not contained in books and on screens and in computers. And most readers are well-educated and they got their degrees by being by by reading books and uh, accessing databases that's what they do for the livelihood probably every day in the office so to prove it to them i i try to take as many point of view as possible uh so as to come from the direction in which they're thinking already um to do that i i i use first of all the most obvious part the account the accounting point of view because accounting was founded about 500 years ago in uh, in venice and it was uh, it was written in a book called the Summa di Mathematica by, uh, oddly enough, the boyfriend of Leonardo da Vinci, uh, Luca Pacioli. And he divided commerce into categories. You have uh, long term and short term. You have debits and you have credits. And in effect, he tried to duplicate the work of science, because in science, you have um, categories and you have 
addition and subtraction, and you use symbols and you do calculations. And almost until that time was more chaotic, and you didn't really know if you really made money or not because you couldn't allocate costs. And Pacioli wrote the book for the first time in an orderly way, and he made accounting into a science. So uh, when he did that, he helped the Venetian get rich, and he served both people who are principals, those who own the capital, or those who are agents, who serve, the, who serve the owners. But when he did that, when he made it look like science, he also, he also eliminated a bunch of things that cannot be categorized. And if you follow those, you can take the money of those who don't do that. So accountant has to come first. But after that come a bunch of other professions that use categorized information as well, and yet every now and then also act on instinct which is the system one way of thinking. And to explain all that, I realized I have to use the Belize method. The Belize method is the one that teach you, teach you a language, not by going into uh, a list of irregular verbs, regular verbs make you uh, learn things by heart, but talking to you in that language, and it's confusing at the beginning, but eventually you catch on. And the part that catches on is a part of the brain that does all the instinctive stuff. And I use three I use analogies, I use conjectures, I use metaphors. And the three metaphors I'm using have been, first of all, the, the primary one is the one of the Turing test, which I can go into later on. Uh, the Turing test uh, is something that shows that you are seeing not the thing itself, but also the reflection of the thing. Uh, and another uh, metaphor is you uh, looking at a corporation as if it's in, in, a, a, in, a, in an atom with particles. So uh, many things can uh, can help you analyze it if you if you are using categories and symbols and mathematics. But there are some parts inside where mathematics don't work and accounting don't work, and this you have to do directly. And, uh, and and a few other categories, which eventually uh, and uh, which eventually can help you more than help the opponents. And to learn about all all the disciplines, we recommend everyone to buy buy your book and read them all. But if we stay on the accounting part, uh, in way of importance for for sleuths, you rank the three parts of a financial statement a bit differently than most CFAs and and most other investors. So if we start there, why are you categorizing them in that in that way? The, if you if you are looking at physical information, the balance sheet comes first because the balance sheet has two parts. You have the left part and the right part. The left side is the one that looks at physical asset mostly. And you can look at buildings, you can look at real estate or cash or inventories or land. And these are all real items. On the right side, you have mostly imaginary items. It can be shareholders' equity, it can be debt, it can be shares in treasury, it can be warrants. All these things are things which are only in your mind, and you can do calculations on them up to three decimals, but they are not real. The, the real value often is on the left side. So if you find there is real estate, you can go and actually measure it and talk to people in City Hall who will let you know that there is a plan to build another building over it, and therefore the value is going to go higher. Um, I give some examples in my book about actual research that was done uh, by people like Carl Icahn. When Carl Icahn uh, heard that uh, somebody has been has been shorting shares of Herbalife, 
uh, he checked to see if Herbalife really is a non-business, and he found it is business by talking to people who, who are lawyers and specialists in uh, consumer products. And because of that, uh, he could see that uh, Carl, I can, that that, uh, that the, the one who was shorting was wrong. I don't want to want to mention names because the people who have been wrong uh, don't have to be advertised. Uh, and therefore, Carl Icahn went and bought the shares and registered under his name, and the shorter had to go and buy them far higher, and he lost money. The, uh, you start with the balance sheet because that's when most of the value is, not the income statement, not the cash flow statement. You look at the real, actual physical assets, and when you do that, you can start looking at how the asset be, uh, go, go higher in price or lower, and that's where you go to the cash. The income statement are, in effect, come last because the income statement is where look at approximations take place. Um, they still have to be okay, still have to be uh, studied, but I would say the balance sheet should, should be first. So it's, I mean, the criticism that you you give to to regular investors is that they they more or less trust the figures that the company present without doing, I mean, the deeper work on on if the values are actually correct or not. Is that is that how to summarize it? I I would say that the first thing to do is to mistrust any secondary information, the blips and the ink. Um, I, I I give the analogy of the Turing test. Uh, for people who are not familiar with it, uh, Alan Turing was a genius that uh, began his career in Bletchley Park in Britain by uh, decrypting the, the, the German Enigma machine and helps the win Second World War. But he also occupied himself with automating uh, with the, with the state machines, the first computers. And he, he also did some business with, with chess, which I'll go into later on. And the, tour, the famous Turing test is, assume you have a wall with a slot in it. And behind the wall, you have an entity which can be an AI or can be a human being. And the only way for you to find out is if you if you uh, ask the entity questions by uh, writing the question on a piece of paper and sliding it over through the slot. The questions can be in Sanskrit or in German or in English or in computer code, and you are going to get the answers back. The question is, can you find if what behind the wall is human or AI, or AI that tries to fake a human, or a human tries to fake AI, just by looking at the blip uh, at, the, at the blips on the screen on the ink on paper, and the answer is no, because the most the critical item here is the constraint. You are not allowed to peek behind the wall, because once you peek behind the wall, all your five senses operate. Now, why do I mention all this? Why does it matter to people who are investors? Because if you're only sitting at home drinking coffee with air condition and looking at information on the screen and going click, click, you're basically looking at the world through a slot in the internet. The internet for you is the Turing slot. And the information you are getting can be lies, can be PR by Wall Street, or can be some, some Russian mobster trying to sell you a gold mine with fake financial statements. Unless you're really looking at the real world in the eye, activating all your five centers, senses, somebody can take your money. And when I read money, I always saw it as my obligation to look at things in reality. Um, I'm going to go later on into a physicist, in effect. You can see them via the same metaphor. 
Physicists are human beings that look at the universe through the slot of mathematics. Anything that doesn't go into math, they are blind to. And the Turing slot of math is, in essence, their cortex. The cortex only passes through um, things that can become that, that that have become already categories. Anything which is not categorized, like trust of the employees in the boss, or the boss enmity of the of his board, these things are important, but they are not categorized in the financial statements. So, um, I would say that. If you want to keep one central metaphor in mind when you are doing analysis, the primary one to keep in mind is the the Turing test and the Turing slot. Always remember, you are not seeing the the corporation as it really is. You're only going to see its reflections. And if you get it directly, you have an advantage. And to really understand the purpose of of your book, one of my favorite chapters is from the viewpoint of chess players. And this includes two great analogies of how chess computers have developed over uh, the past uh, decades. And the first one starts in 1948 and sets our brain up against a computerized brain. Can you tell our listeners a bit about this? Sure. The, it's interesting that the clearest case to see how system one works is in chess computers, but the modern ones, not the old ones. Uh, Chess itself is a game with very fixed rules, and like accounting, and therefore you can do analysis of a position of in the chessboard by doing something called evaluating function. Alan Turing did it, I think, in the 40s, and uh, Norbert Wiener and uh, Claude Shannon, who have been some of the earliest promulgators of the of uh, information theory, uh, wrote some papers about it. You can see the chessboard, a chess position. Uh, via six 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 variables in an evaluating function. You can just summarize all the material on the board. A pawn is one, a queen is nine, uh, a knight is uh, is three, and so on. And when you sum them all up, you have the material value of yours and your opponent position. And then you can also have the king safety, and you have something called king tropism, and you have mobility. You have six variables. If you sum them all up, you have your position on the board and the, and the opponent's position. You can now calculate how your position will be improved by each of the 30 or 40 or, 30 or, or, or 50 possible chess moves for you. And the same for the opponents. And you can only go f- forward two or three times before you have what's called combinatorial explosion. Uh, grandmasters can evaluate 30, 40 positions and computers can evaluate more, but even computers can evaluate too much. Still, uh, you can use fancy computers to compete against people, but they're still using the system two uh, method by comparing the positions numerically, which is what most value investors do when they're trying to compare stocks. You're trying to buy, for example, the lowest price earning stocks or the lowest EV to EBITDA or lowest uh, uh, lowest EVA evaluation, which was Joel Greenblatt does. It's still system two, methodical, analytical, intellectual way of analysis. When you do that, you come to a certain point which is becoming impossible to go beyond. But even with that, Gary Kasparov was vanquished by a computer, by Deep Blue. Deep Blue was using system to thinking, plus a lot of shortcuts called heuristics. 
Then came the modern computers, which are, in essence, fancy neural nets. And the neural networks are playing against a copy of themselves. What they do then is trying to improve, do better and better. And the interesting thing is that the neural net doesn't get anything beyond the rules of the game. It doesn't divide the game into uh, uh, opening games and end games and middle game. It doesn't have any heuristic, only those it generates itself. So in effect, a neural net is like a sleuth investor that has a, a million years memory. And everything that it does only gets computed not by its category, not by how valuable it is, but whether this kind of move led to a winning situation at the end. Did it lead to a win or to a loss? And funnily enough, the rule that the, that the neural net uses is the rule that, that Charlie Munger using for success in life. And the rule is very simple. Do what works and don't do what doesn't work. That's it. Do what works for you and don't do what doesn't work for you. If you have a million-year memory, it's good. If you are 90-year-old, it's also good, like Charlie and, and, and Warren Buffett are. But in essence, you are trying to treat a situation on its own with all the parameters. The edge of the sleuth investor is some of the parameters are not categorized. They are not just the numbers of the company. For example, if you know that Steve Jobs just hired the top CEO of of Pepsi, and he hired the CEO by shaming him into joining, and this CEO he just hired is going to be antagonistic to jobs for the next 10, 15 years as an inbuilt tension that can create a risk that the numbers will not show you. In other words, there are risks not reflected in the balance sheet, the income statement. Taking another simple example, if somebody shows you that uh, Alibaba is is very cheap, uh, if you know it's being it's being traded in China, where the top dictator can take the shares away from you, it's a risk not reflected in the income statement. If you have a company in which you know that the CEO has been playing on the side of the secretary, he's going to be sued tomorrow. That's a risk you will not see. These are all trivial statements, but in essence, modern computers who play chess only play from memory, and the memory contains things not in the financial statements. So I would say from computer chess, you can learn how to better your game. And oddly enough, the old way of playing chess with computers in which you use an evaluating function can also give you a way of sifting the enormous number of stock in the market and zero in on the few really worth your sleuthing time. I have I have a list of 15 of those in the book that show where you better direct your efforts. And this is based on the old ways of computer chess. But the new way is what you can do by doing physical sleuthing. And for a, for a young investor, what is your conclusion? I mean, it seems uh, you just need to practice, practice, practice and get out there in the in the field. Or what do you say? I would say if you are a young investor, first of all, um, focus on learning the basics. I mean, you have to know how to read the financial statement. You have to know how the company works. But 
read read my first book, of course, to uh, to, to practice uh, the uh, sleuthing. But remember that what you have out there is not all there is. Um, if you if you are only analyzing the financial statements, you don't know about top management. Top management are usually exceptional people, not always, but they are people who have extreme drive and extreme ability, and they know how to handle other people. I would say read a lot of the historical biographies of leaders, because if you are looking at the company and the company CEO, and it reminds you of somebody or someone that you have read in a book, and somebody who is, let's say, even an evil character or not a good character, but very effective, it will prevent you from letting your moral outrage overcome your analysis. For example, Jimmy Carter was a below average president, but he's almost a saintly human being. If you go over the history of American presidents, you realize that some of those who succeeded have not always been the best people. The same with the corporation. Steve Jobs was known as somebody who was not always the best person, but he was a business genius. So if you try to evaluate company by your moral evaluation of the top, which is a common failing among many investors, then you may not always do well. Uh, shorting shorting uh, Steve Jobs just because you don't like his actions uh, wouldn't lead you very far. And just as if you are going to go long, the company is led by a Jimmy Carter type wouldn't lead you very far. So try to read as much as you can about a non-numerical part of the company. Um, try to realize that you only see the company through a very narrow slot of numbers and you should go beyond them and beyond that try to understand what's happening inside the company itself both on the on the level of people and the level of what the assets are really like i will add only one or two notes about how the chess analogy can help you remember that the evaluation of the accounting numbers is done according to the division as per the balance sheet and income statement. Um, but as an old partner of mine used to say, the accounting usually for, for expenses is done uh, bass backwards, as you used to call it. Uh, people salaries are expense and machinery is capitalization. But if you're looking at a brokerage company or a money management company or almost any modern company, if you have a Steve Jobs or a Warren Buffett, or a Charlie Munger at the head of the company, he or she is an asset, or, or Bill Gates. And on the other hand, if you have some old management of IBM, they are liability. They will not even appear there. Um, if This means specifically, if you look at the R&D line in the company expenses, if a company spent 100 million bucks on an R&D for the last three years, and this R&D is still alive, it's composed of two parts the research and the development. The research is like blue sky research. You, it's like wildcat drilling. It's a hit and miss. But if it's more, de more development than research, and, and you sum up all the money that they spent over the last three years, and clients tell you that they just missed it by about a year or two, but if the product comes online, they'll buy it. Any competitor comes along, they will have to spend more than 100 to be there. So at that point, the 100 million bucks of the R&D becomes an asset. You wouldn't know it unless you go and research by talking to people in the company and among the clients. On the other hand, they, all the machinery that the competitor invested in, invested in may be nothing. So 
you can't just believe the accounting statement without going behind them and talking to actual people and actual clients to see what they're really like. And uh, this takes us to the physicist's view, where you compare sleuth investing with quantum physics. And for us who might have read Richard Feynman, but are not experts in the field, can you explain the connection in a simple way? Uh, that's the part when I'm going to lose some readers. I better be very careful. Um, Richard Feynman said that if you think you understand quantum physics, quantum mechanics, he said, you don't understand it. And it's basically a statement of fact because understanding is done by the brain's cortex. Understanding means you generalize. You get a million items, millions pictures of a cat, and you have to know which is a cat, which is a tiger. You can't know exactly why the brain decides, but your brain put all these millions, usually less than a million in, and it comes out with categories, cat or non-cat, or cat and a tiger. Understanding is categorizing. Quantum physics is about the state of the world or a state of commerce too before it has been categorized or the part that cannot be categorized. What Feynman said is, if you think you understand that it cannot be categorized, you don't because your understanding mechanism is the cortex. And if your brain hurts right now to hear it, it's because your cortex is protesting. Um, when you are doing analysis the way you have been taught in school, on the way of the Warren Buffett way or Joel Greenblatt or any other uh, CFA or MBA, you're basically using your cortex as a categorizer. Physics, as I said before, is how the world is viewed by a people who are, using, who are looking at math. If you tell physicists there are some of the part of the world that cannot be understood via mathematics, they get very uncomfortable. I have friends who are physicists that they get very uncomfortable because you basically tell them there's a limit to your profession. And in my book, I go a little bit into the chapter in the chapter about mathematician that there was a conference in Paris uh, in 1900 led by uh, David Hilbert, who was the pre uh, prime mathematician of the day, in which several of the questions he asked basically asked the reductionism question. Um, how much of the real world can you understand via ink on paper or today blips on screen? Uh, and there are some questions that cannot be answered. Uh, the famous question that Gödel afterwards said uh, showed that uh, math, as he said, it's it's uh, it's incomplete. There are certain certain problems that mathematics cannot really answer, and the same with physics. The sixth question of of Hilbert asked if you can uh, axiomatize physics. In essence, can you describe physics from from uh, axiom all the way through via uh, ink squiggles, which uh, in the in the in the uh, in the case of uh, of Turing, it's being asked about people. Can you describe people completely via ink on paper? And the answer is no. And what physicists try to do to understand the universe via ink on paper also cannot be done which is what the 2022 Nobel Prize was given for. So the analogy I'm making, the metaphor, is that a corporation is an atom with plenty of individual particles inside. The particles are both assets and people. And when the corporation interacts with another corporation, you can use accounting very happily. And you understand it, and you can do debt because you owe debt to a bank, and the bank is also a corporation. But when you start looking inside the company itself, it's like looking inside the atom, inside the proton. Uh, the proton to this day is a very great mystery. 
if you if you look at the quark or the anti-quark, you get you get two different views. So if you look at the company by looking at the management, or you're looking at the assets, or you're looking at the liabilities, or you're looking at the people, the views you'll get are different. Um, the views of companies via accounting is incomplete, just as mathematics is incomplete and physics is incomplete. And the analogy I'm making here is to the observer. The classical observer in physics is using data that always existed. It's called the realist viewpoint. The quantum physics observer creates his or her own data by asking the universe a certain question and the universe answers back. It's the same way that modern uh, neural nets learn, learn how to play chess. They ask a certain question and they get an answer back. And the answer they back is sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but mostly it does. Which brings me to, again, to Charlie Munger. If it works, do it. If it doesn't work, don't do it. And usually it's much harder to avoid doing what hasn't worked for you in the past because you still like to do it. Uh, one of my failings, I just love turnarounds. But I shouldn't be doing it because they're always uncertain and they take longer than you think, but they are fun. So to finish the, to finish the answer, a physics analogy in essence is that see yourself not as an observer of existing data, but as an active participant in the universe or in the universe of commerce. You are creating data on your own and that's going to be your own unique data which you use by yourself to take the money of those who don't have it. So the observer in physics is analogous in this case to the observer in investing. So to make this more even more practical for, for investors, if you go out, I mean, most of our listeners by now are familiar with what, what sleuthing is. And there are many different ways to do it, as you have showed in the first book, and you have some great examples also in the second book. But when you come across all that information, uh, when you're out in the field, before your brain starts categorizing it into the system too, into the logic, into the cortex part of your brain, how do you make use of it and uh, actually take that mo money from the other investors? How do you do that more practically? Well, there are two parts that address this in the book. One is um, to show that there are parts of, of the brain in which information is contained. I wouldn't repeat the entire anecdote, but uh, Tony Bennett, the famous singer, uh, suffered from Alzheimer and his memory has gone, completely gone, was, was gone. Both the cortex couldn't categorize anymore and the hippocampus, uh, which, which is the part of the brain that, uh, that usually preserves the memory, it was all gone. And yet when Lady Gaga, took him to a double concert in which both he and she would would appear, his memory all of a sudden magically came back and he could sing from beginning to end with all the emotions and all the instinctive reactions to her and to the orchestra. And the answer and the question that the mystery is, where is all this information hiding? Does the brain do backups? Because when he, over 25 years, he got a certain expertise and he got a lot of information. When his brain went into Alzheimer mode, the information disappeared. And yet it came back. To me, it's a practical proof, not a scientific proof, but a practical proof that the information is still there in your brain. But the key to access it is emotion. The neurologist of uh, Tony Bennett said that the information that was gone was pickled in emotion. And to unpickle it, you have to bring back the same emotion that you felt when you did the research. When you talk to people who spoke about a CEO 
who is much less good than people think, you felt the emotions in their voice and you had a certain emotional reaction to it. This is the key that you can use to access the information hiding behind. And once you do all this, my advice in the last chapter of the book is not to do it cold on real money. Because if you start your sleuthing on real money, you're bound, you're bound to lose it. And I give an ex I give examples from people who are performers in other areas of life. Musicians practice what they do. Athletes practice. Uh, top gun pilots practice. Almost all people who are using who are, who are using a certain technique in art to perform practice it in a safe environment. Just like in Berlitz, you practice the language in a safe environment. So in the last chapter of my book, I show how you can start practicing sleuth investing. My recommendation is to start a fake portfolio with fake money. You can create it on, on YouTube. And then every day, act on it by buying and selling real stocks, but with using the fake money in the fake portfolio based on, on decisions which you note down. And after six months to a year or maybe longer, you'll begin to see what works for you and what doesn't work for you. And you have to write it down because your brain will play tricks on you. The brain doesn't like to remember things in which you blew it and magnify your, your victories. So the last chapter of the book is how you put it all together. So as to go into the mode of the modern, of the modern, modern neural network that play chess, that do what works and don't do what doesn't work. And when you do that, you begin to realize that charting doesn't work. You think that the charts gave you the winner, but you forget all the time they gave you the losers. And you realize that the ratio of the time that you spend with the company itself physically to the time you spend on the internet is key. When you spend physical time with physical people in the company with a physical asset, it's worth several times analysis time in front of the of the screen and nothing that i will say will, will will be more convincing to you than seeing this your own record in sleuth investing on the screen and once you do that um eventually you may realize that even buying one or two stocks and doing real work on them gives you more profit than doing 20 30 40 trades over a year and there's nothing that I say will convince you more than your actual record by doing this with, with, with fake portfolio. And to follow up a bit on the emotional side, I think it's interesting how those experiences are, are shaped when you're out doing sleuthing. And I mean, that's as you describe it in the book and also here, when you, when you get those impressions, they are very valuable and you should write them down and uh, like taking a lot of those kind of impressions of course to, to make your judgment but but you cannot rely too much on your emotional experiences right because if you i mean it's easy to be swayed by a person or you find some bit of information out there that you feel is exclusive to you and it's important and this will be very valuable but you cannot rely too much on it how do you avoid those kind of situations you you cannot rely on information that you hear from others because many people lie. But as you'll find by yourself, when you do sleuthing, it's much easier to catch the smell of truth than to catch a lie. Because when people really believe what they say, now they can be wrong, but when people really believe what they say, unless they are great actors, you can smell it. When somebody 
telling you about Steve Jobs that he is not the best human being, but people have been postponing weddings to finish a project for Steve Jobs. Why? Because Steve Jobs was changing the world. People will do that. Um, if you are talking to people in a company uh, where everyone believes that the company is doing well, and you ask the, the people, tell me why you are doing well, and they start going sideways, and they're not really answering the question, the instinct will tell you that not to believe them. But the instinct of, of believing people is much stronger than instinct to believe them. I have a case a study in my book, which is apocryphal, about uh, the uh, number two in, this, in the CIA who forecasted the fall of the Berlin Wall one week in advance. Nobody believed him, but uh, he went out to East Berlin and talked to the locals in the in the local language, in the Plattdeutsch, in the local slang, and he gave them cigarette and he and he told them body jokes, they told him jokes right back, and he came back and he had absolute conviction that there's going to be something happening in about a week or two, and he put it down on paper, and the Secretary of State at the time told him to withdraw it because no one else in the CIA, no one else in the State Department, no one else believed it. And he was absolutely convinced. And he staked his career on it because it was personal. It was a pers momentary personal relationship between him and him, the informers. At a certain point, you are going to get a point in your career when everybody believes A and you believe B based on a certain point. And you believed A too, but your point of view changed. And this change that's happening inside you will stick in your memory. It's the kind of thing you cannot fake. And over time, those few things that will convince you that something is really true will pay for all the other mistakes you will make. And it can only be done face-to-face -face in reality, like one person to another, not you with a computer and a blip on the screen. There's just no comparison. It's real life. It's not It's not a reflection, it's the real life itself. So despite all the work going into the sleuthing part of, of analysis, you write that you think that uh, picking stocks is only 30 to 40% of the investing art. So I'm curious yes. to know, what's the rest? Well, if, 30 or 40, if, if you pick stocks, you can get a list of maybe 20 or 25 stocks that on the numbers, on the face of it, look good. How do you know whether they are really good? In my first book, I give an example of an analyst who went across the world to look at a mine that had been salted by the local politicians and uh, bankrupted a few pension funds. He just didn't believe what he saw on the screen, and he went to talk to cab drivers and mine workers on the spot. So I would say 30 or 40% of the actual stock picking is done via the numbers as a sifter. I give an example of a sifting formulas in the book. And that's basically a system to thinking. And uh, for example, if you look at the uh, uh, growth rate of a company, the sales growth, plus the return on, on capital, plus the gross margin, you want it to be above a certain level before you even look at the company. It could still be okay, but it would not be exceptional enough. And let's say you get a list of 20 or 30 or 40 exceptional companies. Which ones are you going to dedicate your time to? You have to do some quick analysis of the people in the company, the CEO or the CFO, where did they go to school? What do people who've been in the class think about them? Are they geniuses or have they been cheating in golf and poker? 
um, you want to know what they're really like. And once you pass some of the smell tests, then you can start reducing the number into those you really want to dedicate time to. And I would say 30 or 40% is the picking of the initial worth sleuthing stocks. The rest of it is going to be up close and personal what they're really, really like, physically like. And beyond that is going to be the effort of to do nothing. If you got a Microsoft or an Amazon or an Intuit or other companies at the beginning of their life, the way to make money is you buy them and you are absolutely sure of them and you keep sleuthing them year in, year out as you hold them and then you do nothing. You keep sleuthing as you hold them and you do nothing else. And after 30 or 40 years, you're rich. But it's mostly by doing nothing except sleuthing all along. The new companies that you put in your portfolio uh, shouldn't be very many of them. You should act not frequently, act not often, but when you act, act decisively and then keep it for long. So as I said, the analogy is the, the secret of a good marriage is to find the right wife or husband, marry them, and then stick with them for 50, 60, 70 years. All advice is how to pick the right spouse. Very few advice, very little advice is how to do the stick with it. And sleuthing is both about finding the right stock and marrying it, but also how to stay married to the stock. And this is almost always, if I might go a bit on the edge here, mostly physical, but not only. You really have to know what's going on there. So the, the second book that I have, I'm using uh, three metaphors that will help you keep in mind what's the really essential stuff. Don't be a touring test investor that only see the universe via the slot of the screen in mathematics. And remember that a company, in essence, is like a part of it's like, it's like, like an economic atom, and you can see the outside of it and act on it with accounting. But what's happening on the inside, you have to be an active observer to find what's really going on. And once you have these two, you also have to understand that there are some elements in commerce which cannot be expressed in categories, just like they are in physics. And when you have these three metaphors in your mind, what it teaches you is humility and modesty. Uh, you can't really know everything, and you can't know everything from the comfort of your home and the coffee cup. Put the coffee cup aside, put on your gum shoes, and go out, talk to real people, and look at physical stuff. And then you are going to know maybe 10% more than others do. But it's like the roulette table. If you know what a 10% tilt is, you got it. And eventually you're going to get, make mistakes too, but at least you know why you made them if you keep track. So get my book, uh, The Sleuth in the first one, The Sleuth Investor, buy the second one, The Advanced Sleuth Investor, read them, start a fake portfolio and start tracking yourself. And after a while, just by not doing what doesn't work for you, this by itself will pay for the book several times over. Okay, so for the research part of your in stock investing, we should uh, mostly use the system one for all this uncategorizable data and doing the sleuthing. We should complement this with our system two for analyzing what can be categorized, like financial statements, mm -hmm. which we still have to do. And when we do the execution, we should mostly use our system two, but, but not doing anything, basically. Is that... Uh, a reasonable conclusion or what do you think about the execution part with you in terms of system one the, execu the execution part is i would say five percent doing and 95 percent not doing 
again, Charlie Munger, which I like to cite, uh, he says that if you own a stock and go down 50%, if you really like it, it doesn't mean much. Now, if it goes down 80%, uh, you know, you jump. But the, the basic message is that your brain is not fully employed if you're only looking at blips and ink. Blips and ink is only a small part of the real world of commerce. The world of commerce is the world of conflict and drama and human emotions and trust and mistrust and battle and winning and losses. And you can't just convey all of this just via numbers on a screen. Value line is very important, but you cannot really reduce yourself to just acting on symbols. Um, you have to stress it because most people have got education in schools which are enclosed by walls and have people, and you have labs perhaps, but in which, but the, the action in the market is people against people, like spy versus spy, and you know, a wrestler against wrestler. So you have to know that the real world out there is different. System two will, is something you have to do. It's the numbers, the analysis, the CFA, I don't know CFAs, they have a lot of useful knowledge, but there is information beyond that which can never be encapsulated in numbers and letters and concepts. Is something that you get in your gut because that's how your brain works too. Part of the input into your brain decision making is uh, when you saw the, the 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 assets and when you talk to the CEO, to the corner of your eye, you saw everybody else roll their eye and saying, "Yeah, sure." This is part of the stuff that is not written down. And when you see that, you become a better investor by, in essence, becoming a better human. Also, acting, knowing who to trust, who not to trust not just what to trust, but who to trust. And when you have that, eventually the money will accumulate. And when you have that, you know, buy good books, do what you like to do, give to charity, and uh, tell people what you think. And knowing that you'll be wrong in some, but less and less as time goes on. And to put you on the spot a bit, I mean, how much time in percentage would you allocate to researching and sleuthing and how much time do you put on on actually making the transactions and so on? Uh, I'm now semi-retired, so I can do a little bit. I mean, a, another friend of mine used to say, most people are busy with making a living, so they never have time enough to make money. Um, I am now semi-retired, so I spend time on uh, mentoring students occasionally, and I write books. I try to spend more time on making sure that what I own is the right things to own. And every now and then, another, another stock comes up. So um, the execution itself shouldn't take much because it's buying and selling. And if you decide to have X percent position in a stock, uh, if it's very thin, better not. If it's very liquid, it doesn't really matter when you buy it so long as it's, it's value and you hold it for long. Um, in some cases, the thing that matters the most, oddly enough, is the, no is the number of hours you have to put on for maintenance research. If you have to do a lot of due diligence ongoing on the company, it's like flying an aerobatic plane. You have to be on the stick all the time because it's, it, it's unstable. It's a wonderful plane. You can go 300 miles an hour, you know, from standstill. But you have to be every day to check that nobody lies, nobody cheats. They still sell there. The, the microchips still sell. If you have to do maintenance research every day, it's like having a uh, a wife that needs a mink mink coat every day, or you have a boyfriend that needs you know a new football every every day. It's too much. You cannot do too much research on a stock. 
you have to have a stock that of a company that is stable and into it will always have a market position. Microsoft will have always a market position. If you find something that can hurt their position, it will not likely be very fast. You'll have time to react. So be careful not to own stocks that need a lot of attention all the time. So again, to answer your question, Eddie, the uh, execution as far as the buying and the selling, it's not very onerous. In trading it is, but I don't do trading. And the research, the research side, you have to like doing the sleuthing. You have to like to interact with people. For those who are introverts, get some people who like to do it and pay them to do it for you. You don't have to do only what you like to do. If what is key is not something in your skill you know, palette, find somebody and pay them. Uh, sleuth, sleuth investing is not cheap. You have to pay the experts, but it's worth it. And to wrap up this uh, fascinating conversation, I mean, we we have been talking about how to use our brains to become better investors, but we also recently had Greg Zuckerman on the podcast to discuss his great book, The Man Who Sold the Market, about Jim Simons' success with his firm, Renaissance Technologies. Yes. And Simons has really crushed the market for more than three decades with his automated trading systems, which at first glance, I mean, it seems very far from, from sleuthing for physical evidence. We touched upon it a little bit in our conversation uh, in March, and you also provide an interesting discussion in, in the appendix of your new book. So what is your conclusion on this? Jim Simons is, is an uh, interesting uh, outlier because he, he is doing something that few others can do or have done. I didn't want to put him in the book because the readers cannot duplicate what he has done. I, I played with neural nets uh, many years ago. In 1994, I had a very small neural net called BrainMaker, which operated on Excel. And I tried to see what the forecast for the stock market will be. And it came as a very fantastic bullish stock market. So I had an article in Barron's in 1994, I think it was April, you can look it up. And then all the world and the kid brothers began to send me emails to get my forecast for the next month. And I said, I don't know, it's, 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 a, it's a neural net. And at the time it guessed correctly. What Jim Simon is doing, first of all, he's a genius, certified genius, he's a field medalist. And he, his other unappreciated genius is rather, is, is managing other geniuses. Uh, I once ran the top performing research group, so I appreciate that. It's like herding cats. So he can, he knows which people to hire and how to manage them. What they have is in effect a giant neural network. It, 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 it's a bunch of Markov chains that tells you what the next stage in the market is going to be. And they, in my understanding, run a self-testing, self-improving, self-teaching neural net that picks up some faint signals of where things are going. I think they call it smoke, like wisp of smoke. But in my understanding, the real edge they have, just my opinion, is that they're using non-financial information as inputs. Instead of just using financial statements and footnotes and the market and, and prices and so on and volume, they're using physical information expressed in ink and blips, yes, in data, but physical information like temperature and climate and politics and uh, traffic in malls and things seen from satellites and many other things too. So they can use 
the movement of planets for all I know, but if they find that it has a connection to stock prices, they don't have to justify why they are connected. Just like the neural net that plays chess in a modern way, they don't care about the why. They, could, they, could, they, they, they only care about the if it works. If it works, they do it. If it doesn't, they don't do it. Now, um, I'm not to, to write anything about this because the last thing I want to do is help Jim Simmons collect more money from people who read my book. What I want to do is teach people who read my book what they can do to make more money and out of the market by having people like me and uh, Jim Simmons, who's way beyond me, take their money. So I try to write a book which is practical. But what Gene Simmons has done is, is something outstanding. And I think he's on the level with Warren Buffett as far as originality. Uh, he himself said Warren Buffett is looked for the few trees that grow to the sky. And what Renaissance Technology, that his company, what they're doing, they're looking for a field of corn in which some ears of corn are one inch above the others and they shave them off. But they do it consistently. So again, to answer your question, Eddie, I mean, I couldn't expand about Jim Simmons because it would be interesting as an anecdote, but it would be useless to the readers. I try to do something which will be interesting and useful. And uh, to finish on this one, I mean, I, th I think every book should do only two things if it's a book of fiction or three if it's nonfiction. The first two things are when you pick it up, you cannot put it down. The second, when you finish reading, you can't forget it. And if it's nonfiction, at the end, it gave you something useful that it gave you some extra powers to do what you want to do. So in my fiction books, I basically want to keep you riveted and afterwards make you think of it. But in the Sleuth Investor, the first book, and in the Advanced Sleuth Investor, when you read it, it's pleasure to read. I hope it's not easy to put down. And afterwards, you keep thinking about it. And when you really do it, it helps you make more money and helps outperform the market. That's the test. Because if you can't do that, you buy an index fund or buy Berkshire Hathaway. But I, I hope you can outperform the market. Not easy to do, but you can if you just do the right thing and stop doing the wrong things. Well, I mean, we think that the sleuthing approach is uh, truly unique and, and your books uh, stand out in comparison with the general investing literature, literature which, which helps, of course, I mean... Uh, it, it's easy to remember what you write, to summarize it. And uh, in your appendix about Renaissance technologies, you open up for perhaps writing about how to use uh, computers for sleuthing. Do you want, want to write uh, more books on the topic? Well, interesting that you ask. Um, I don't think I'm going to write another strictly investing book. But my next book, um, I think it's going to be titled How to Build an Empire. Because most successful investors build an empire, it can be a financial empire, it can be a business empire. And the rules of building an empire are about 3,000 years old. They're not new. So I am going to perhaps write a book, How to Build an Empire, that will help the reader build his or her empire of her own. And uh, it can be any area. It can be in politics, it can, can be in finance, it can be in business, it can be in technology. Or if not that, at least it will help people here understand how the empires that you want to, take, to, to piggyback on in the market work. Because you really have to understand a, a company that grows from zero to a billion in 10 years has, has cornered the market on something by building an empire of sorts. So 
the next book can be how to build an empire either on your own or how to see it work for others. It'll be a very short one. It'll be maybe, I would say, eight tools to build it and 10 chapters with examples. But we'll see. I, once this book is finished, uh, I, I just want to take a little rest and uh, just read some uh, non-business books for a while and uh, wait for reactions from the from the readers. Uh, and for, for all the viewers, I mean, go buy my book. And uh, if you like it, give a, uh, give a positive review on Amazon and tell all your friends. And if you didn't like something, just tell me personally. I think you are, are very well worth a, a, a little vacation and uh, looking forward to read what you, you're going to write in the future. You have read a lot and really is a person with high level of knowledge from many disciplines. So we are curious to know if there's any book, both old or, or new, that over the past year or so has been important for you in your investing. Well, the, the, I could mention more than one book, but the, the book I always recommend to Sleuth Investor is uh, Plutarch Parallel Lives, which gives you a, a, a rare viewpoint into the world of exceptional people who have been leaders, both both flaws and advantages. And you'll be surprised how many times the same sort of characters will recur for you when you do analysis of CEOs. But if you want a book that I read over the last two years that kind of influenced me to write this book, there's a book called On Intelligence by Jeff Hawkins. Jeff Hawkins, is the he, he highlights the cortex in his research, and he shows how the six layers of the cortex, in essence, they structure what you and I and all the viewers and listeners are seeing and thinking about because it makes you categorize things. It makes you see things in a, in a way, and it can be both people who are uneducated or PhDs. It makes you think in categories. So once you see that, you begin to realize there are many things you are blind to. So uh, I would say Jeff Hawkins' book would be there, but if you want something which is like 2,000 years old or close to it, it would be uh, Plutarch. It was also called The Pasturage of Great Souls. So you, you find people that you probably don't find in real life, not very often. Thank you, Avner, for a great conversation about you and your new book, The Advanced Sleuth Investor, which we, of course, recommend everyone to buy and, and review. Do you have something more you want to add before we finish up? Oh, I, I would just say that uh, when, you, when you invest, treat it as a business endeavor. You shouldn't be spending more time that you could be making on your own by doing what you really do, because you wouldn't be able to invest unless you are probably a fairly high earner. So track how long you do it and what the return is. And over time, you have to improve. Uh, it's just like every other athlete, because see to the performance sport. If you're an athlete, you keep track of everything you do, the angle of your ankle before when, when, when you are when you are starting the run. Uh, if you are a violinist, you track how it sounds and what you change. Track what you do and see what works and what doesn't work. Do more of the first and less of the second. And just this rule by itself will make you improve no matter what you do, what book you read, what book you write. Great. And lastly, where can our audience follow you? You can follow me. I am on uh, on Twitter at Adam Mandelman, and I'm also on YouTube at uh, the Sleuth Invest Investor channel. And um, I hope my book is going to be both on Amazon and on Kobo and uh, uh, Apple iBooks. 
And eventually I'm going to be on some other social media, but that's, that's the beginning. Perfect. Thank you so much, Avner. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. Follow us on Twitter at IB underscore Red Eye and email us at ib.podcast at redeye.se. To improve, we'd love to hear your feedback, so please rate and review us. Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.se. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.